This week, nothing much happened in the news, and so we're going to talk about what I wrote this week. This is Where is the Love? This is Where is the Love? I'm Michael Weir. And uh, and this is Where is the Love? Hey, it's uh, <laughs> uh, Melissa. Uh, we have quite a bit to talk through. Uh, a lot has happened in the news. We're going to talk about it kind of uh, through the lens of the fact that I wrote a ton this week, some of it on the news of this week. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we watched the new HBO doc of Spring Awakening. Yes. The Broadway musical. And this musical is special to us in uh, several ways. One, it was like the musical. So last five years was probably like my... My the first half of high school, I think. If the timing, I think that's right. Yeah, I right. think that's right. Spring Awakening blew up my like last two years of high school, and uh, as you all, as loyal listeners know, uh, Melissa and I were in show choir together. <laughs> we were theater kids, uh, so that meant this music was sort of like ubiquitous. My final two years of high school. Secondly. The musical features the one and only Brian Charles Johnson, uh, uh, BJ. BJ was a senior uh, at uh, our high school when I was a freshman. We were in the production of Meet Me in St. Louis together. Uh, uh, And uh, we sang together uh, for a year, including some like... Uh, uh, sort of like duet kind of things. He was always like extremely kind to me. I actually recently did a podcast in the last couple of years with BJ and uh, another friend from high school, uh, Mike Farrell. We'll we'll drop that in the show notes uh, for those of you who want to hear me talk to uh, two really incredible guys from Buffalo uh, and talk about the Buffalo Bills quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> if that's a particular line of conversation you want to hear. Um, you also may just want to hear and see BJ. So BJ uh, was on Broadway in Spring Awakening. uh, And this was just like a couple years after he graduated. And it was just the coolest thing. And we had kind of heard he was in this off-Broadway show, uh, like off, off off-Broadway show, and knew it had some kind of racy material As they talk about in the doc, it didn't seem destined for Broadway in large part because of that. They also didn't have like a huge name star. Of course, uh, since the musical, several of the the, uh, original cast are are big name stars now. But uh, so BJ was in the show and it was just the coolest thing uh, in high school to know that just a couple years after he graduated, this guy I was singing with was was 
uh, was on Broadway doing his thing. Uh, he is a loyal Buffalonian. For those of you who watched the document, uh, the, document uh, the documentary, you'll notice uh, you'll be able to spot him out easily because he is featured wearing at least eight different <laughs> Buffalo Bills jerseys. Yep. Um, and then the third thing is the musical is is incredible. It's so good. Michael, you and I were singing every single lyric. Every it, single lyric. It unlocked some memories. It did. It was it was it was the watching that doc was like the first um the first like experience I had of reliving but it's not just reliving so right it would it's it's weird we were we're the same age basically as the people who starred in that in that musical the musical is about high schoolers uh, and then, you know, the, the documentary uh, is built around a 15-year reunion show they did. And so uh, these, uh, these actors are revisiting this musical about all the different feelings and changes and all kinds of things that you, uh, that, that can be a part of sort of puberty and sort of being a teenager. And they're revisiting their roles and also like what they were like when they were in high school through this documentary and you know Melissa and I are watching Melissa and I again as you know dated in high school listened to this musical in high school and then are watching this documentary of actors including an actor we went to high school with or I went to high school with Melissa was a year year younger but this 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 guy that we that we knew um, at the time and still know now talk about uh, their own lives and how it's wrapped up in this musical. So it was just like surreal, Melissa. It was like a surreal experience. I mean, watching that documentary. To sum up, what you're trying to say is we're getting old, Michael. <laughs> that could be it. That could be it. I I prefer the longer version uh, of that. Uh, it it, it kind of softens the edges uh, of of that. But um, I but mean, yes. I'm younger than you. But <laughs> true, <laughs> true, true, true. Then again, you didn't go to high school with Brian Charles Johnson. I did not. I'm That's also right. not turning a whole year older in a couple of weeks, Michael. Actually, no, a week. All right, let's <laughs> moving on, moving on to another topic of conversation. We are uh, recording from San Francisco. We are, or as Sirsha would say, San Francisco. Yes, uh, I. Um, uh, it's a beautiful city. Yeah, I, it really is. I've been able to spend a bit more time here just in recent months, uh, and. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's. I, I haven't been to New Orleans, and I've heard New Orleans is is uh, uh, is also sort of European feeling. But uh, I've I've been to quite a few cities in uh, in in the country, and nothing feels as European as San Francisco feels that I've been to. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, and yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's definitely. Let's say I definitely prefer it to L.A. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but no, it's been good to be here. We'll, we'll be here for a bit more time, but wanted to do uh, an episode for all of you. Uh, and I think this episode will try and keep it tighter because we sent you so much writing this week. And so I'm going to offer quick synopses of three of the pieces uh, that, uh, that we shared. Uh, and then, um, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit, uh, a little bit longer about the fourth. First, for Christianity Today, I was really pleased to be able to uh, uh, have a uh, essay published there on apocalyptic thinking uh, in our politics, um, and and sort of what uh, uh, a more uh, Christian sort of approach to apocalyptic thinking uh, might might look like. Uh, particularly in sort of the public, in the political realm. Also gave me an opportunity to talk about the movie Arrival, which we love. We love that movie. We love that movie. And so it was, uh, I'm glad I have published writing on on Arrival. And so uh, we've sent that around. We'll include it in the show notes again uh, for folks, but uh, we'd love to hear hear thoughts about, about that piece. Uh, second, uh, I think... Listeners here will know the news of the of the week, the news that overtook the news cycle, and that is that uh, uh, last week a draft opinion from Associate Justice Samuel Alito was leaked, which would, uh, if made the official opinion of the Supreme Court, it would overrule Roe, uh, which would... Uh, lead to uh, abortion uh, laws basically being regulated uh, and decided at the state level pending uh, federal legislative uh, action to codify Roe or something less or more than Roe. Uh, Obviously, this is uh, huge, huge news. Abortion law in this country is been basically static for 50 years at the federal level. Uh, and so um, it's, it's a political earthquake. Uh, while law has been static, ab- abortion has roiled our politics for 50 years. And so the way that this ruling, I don't think there's been uh, a lot of discussion yet about how this ruling, uh, this decision, if it is the official decision of the Supreme Court, and I can't emphasize enough, I am not sold that this is the going to be the official opinion of the Supreme Court. But if the Supreme Court rules to, uh, decides to overrule Roe, uh, it will not only lead, obviously, to significant legal and, and legal changes in the nation and in states across the nation, uh, some states more, more than others, uh, it could lead to significant political change. You could see a party realignment as a result of uh, such a decision, and uh, we'll we'll be sifting through that for uh, for the coming weeks and months. And so uh, I wrote uh, very soon, within I think 24, 36 hours of this opinion being leaked. I wrote about. Uh, my sort of quick thoughts about what it meant, uh, what the path forward is. Uh, 
later in the week, I wrote a more uh, ideas-related essay that I've been working on for months. I think it's something like 3,700 words. Uh, the kind of essay I have to say wouldn't be possible without supporters, uh, without uh, those who are subscribing to the newsletter, especially our paid subscribers. Um, and uh, in that essay, I uh, lay out a number of arguments. The second half of the piece really focuses on uh, the ways in which some fundamental pro-choice arguments, I think, have been undermined by other cultural uh, and ideological developments over the last 50 years and over the last 15, 20 years in particular. Uh, and would really love for folks to, to read that. Let me know uh, what, what, what you think. Um, and the first half of the piece uh, talks about just the, the weightiness of uh, the oral arguments in the Dobbs case um, and the fact that uh, no matter where you've been on this issue, uh, how the Supreme Court rules and the aftermath of that offers a certain, will offer a certain kind of accountability. Uh, so much of the abortion debate has been one of opinions, but uh, if the Supreme Court rules to, to decides to overrule Roe or, or, or limit, uh, uh, or really no matter how the Supreme Court rules, all of the opinions, all of the political strategy will meet the test of reality uh, in the Supreme Court decision. So I write about that and how we shouldn't sort of, um, uh, that accountability is something that uh, folks should be open to and welcome and allow it to shape shape their, their views moving forward. Uh, and so uh, those are two abortion uh, pieces. This has been the news of the week. I think it's going to be the news of several more weeks to come until this decision actually comes out. Again, I can't emphasize enough. I, I would expect this is not going to be a linear path from, you know, today to the opinion coming out. I would expect to see uh, some, some turns in this story. And so I'll continue to write on it. We'll continue to cover it in the briefs for those of you who have received the political brief, our, our paid subscribers who received the political brief and faith in the news, uh, you've, uh, uh, we've cultivated and, and curated uh, some of the best writing and analysis and reporting uh, on the topic uh, from, uh, from reporters around the country. Uh, and we'll continue to do that in the weeks ahead. You can subscribe at reclaiminghope.substack.com. But we uh, always will uh, love to hear from you and how you're processing the news. Uh, and so, so, so that's, that's Dobbs, that's Supreme Court. The, the final piece I wrote this week uh, is what I've been working on for a very long time. We've sort of mentioned it on the podcast uh, uh, a few times that it would be coming and, and it, was, it was finally published. It's in the print edition of Mere Orthodoxy's magazine, uh, the volume two. So Mere Orthodoxy, a great publication, uh, just started doing a print magazine. And so this is uh, in the second, second edition. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's about 
the, the, the whole volume is on nationalism. And uh, Mere Orthodoxy's editor, Jake Meter, uh, uh, asked me if I'd be willing, interested in writing on food and identity and nationalism. Uh, and I'd never received a pitch like that and was really excited to, to do it. And the more I dug into the project, uh, the more I felt like I couldn't write it in a way that was detached, that I wanted to write about it in terms of the ways in which uh, my own Italian, Italian-American background and upbringing has informed my identity and the ways in which I do and don't feel sort of uh, a political pull of, of that. Um, uh, and so I'm really happy to have this piece published. I, uh, really out of everything, I hope folks will, uh, if, you, if you can only choose one, I hope you'll read this one. Um, but, but yeah, Melissa, what, what, what uh, I know you read many I sort read of so versions many, yeah. of, of, of that, and uh, obviously you have strong <laughs> feelings about it as well. Yeah, I mean, every single time you write, I read so many versions of it. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever Michael writes anything, just think of me reading it over eight times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this piece, uh, the first read-through, um, when you still have like a little bit more research to do, you, I cried. <laughs> it's a really feel-good piece, folks. So especially if this week has got you down in any sort of way or there's something else going on in your life, um, not just what, what's going on in the news, um, go read this piece. It's very good. Um, it's very Michael. It's very literary. Um, so it's a bit different than your usual writing in terms of style. And I remember you were quite nervous about it. Um, you weren't sure. You weren't completely confident in it. And I thought... No, there's some rhythm in here that you don't normally get because you're having to do more analytical writing and that sort of thing. Um, so it was, it's just a nice thing to uh, read something like that from you. Um, I guess what I'll ask you, uh, because Michael did a ton of research for this. Um, you read books and articles um, and not just sort of memoirish type, but like um, academic writing. Uh, in order to write this piece because, you know, it's not just a sort of personal story for you. You wanted to look into, again, national identity, especially in Italy, and how food intersects with that and how um, especially Italian-American um, Italians who came to the United States, who immigrated, um, who became Italian-Americans, what happened in the 30 to 40 years after they immigrated. You know, they faced discrimination, but then when... Um, new groups of people came in from different countries. How did the, the I think the section on how um, Italian Americans did not welcome um, black and Hispanic um, people who are moving into New York City, who are immigrating over. Um, I think that that's, it, I mean, nothing will ever surprise me, but also just from the, the perspective that Italian Americans should have felt a solidarity and a camaraderie. Yes. And should have been welcoming and should yes. have open their doors to say, uh, here's how it's done, or, you know, let me help you, or, you know, that that didn't happen is... At a widespread level, yeah, that was is... not, the, that was not the, the general response. Um, yeah, I, so, so one thing is the direction of this piece really took shape when I was uh, at a gathering with some journalists, 
some uh, academics, sort of ivory tower types. And I was, I was, uh, I was talking about the five star movement in Italy and yeah. the way that they had um, used issues like uh, the the what goes into a tortellini, uh, for instance, as yes. uh, as a point of division, um, and the fact that this was powerful, and you know, almost almost literally. These academic types, you know, uh, peered over their glasses and sort of like mocked the idea that this could happen and, uh, you know, found it to be outrageous, which to me, I thought was just such a symptom of, uh, you know, I don't know how you could go through what America has has seen over the last six, seven years and still be lost about the, the, the impact and import of identity and culture in politics. But these political scientists and these philosophers were. And so I thought, you know, I really need to write something that tries to, uh, that, that, that gets at the personal power that's made public when it comes to uh, the, these 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 cultural ideas and these cultural forces, um, and so so that's 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 a lot of what the piece uh, tries to do. What Melissa is re- referring to, yeah, so yeah, so I read quite a bit of academic literature, uh, a lot of sociology, um, and I read one book on. The Italian American experience in New York City, in particular, and it was stunning. Um, I, I've always known about sort of historically sort of racist attitudes among Italians, in particular, but also sort of immigrants, uh, uh, European immigrants, sort of a generation uh, removed towards others, particularly uh, 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 African-Americans. Uh, but what I didn't realize was just how, what, what was helpful about the book was it focused on a particular neighborhood. So to see, not just uh, to have geological specificity and for it to be shown on a timeline. So for instance, when uh, the New York City public schools uh, pretty explicitly taught Italian immigrant children that the foodways, the, the, the hygiene of their, of their families was uh, barbaric, was, uh, was uh, low class, was sort of un- unfit for healthy society, was uh, quote unquote third world, like these kinds of uh, tropes. The, the public schools actually uh, were were used to uh, assimilate uh, uh, Italian immigrant kids to American culture and away from their parents. Uh, again, through these sort of awful stereotypes. Well, j- within 10, 15 years, you had a wave of 
uh, migration uh, into Harlem of particularly uh, blacks and Puerto Ricans. And like the same, Melissa, like the same tropes. I mean, it's almost copy paste. The same kinds of tropes, the same kinds of stereotypes, the same kind of tactics, the same institutions are used to perpetuate the same kinds of um, insults, really, against the culture and food ways and traditions and habits and cultures of blacks and Puerto Ricans. And, you know, the, the, the piece highlights, you know, one would hope that uh, Italian-Americans and others would have sort of the the, the 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 memory and from that the solidarity to recognize that their sort of uh, they they had a stake in this that the same weapons that had been used against them were now being turned toward others in a way that degraded others but also because it was the same tools the same it de degraded their own experience too and you would hope that some solidarity would be expressed and there wasn't a, not at a broad scale um and that that was disheartening and and it um you, you know so you would have uh you know you would have italian americans quoted as you know suggesting things like uh you, you know um that uh other cultures just must not love their families the way Italian-Americans do. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a response to the discrimination, that, that the family values of Italian-Americans was in large part a response to the d discrimination they passed, just a, that they, they faced just a generation early, uh, earlier where you had institutions, state institutions saying that the way Italians were raising their kids was harming their kids. Mm -hmm. And so you develop like a, a, a sentiment of, of family values. <laughs> and so it was, it was just deeply frustrating to read that, even though I, I really knew the history, but to see quotes, again, to see the geographic sort of specificity showed me both the, um, here's what it showed me, Melissa. It showed me that um, when, uh, your, um, when you're disinherited, uh, sort of cultural identity uh, can help uh, bond uh, people mm -hmm. and give people a sense of pride. The, 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 a problem is once you attain some kind of status, that positive cultural identity that is asserted to say that you're that no one's better than you all of a sudden there is a turn and that cultural identity can be used to say we're better than everybody else or we're better than others uh, and so uh, these things have to be held tenderly that's a major sort of point of the piece we need to be um we should be very careful and particularly when it's taken into politics and public life, sort of mm -hmm. the ways in which uh, these threads of cultural, ethnic identity, national 
uh, national identity can sort of be pulled to push us in a particular political direction. Some of that pull is, I think, unavoidable. It's so much a part of it's sort of our identities are so much a, so much a part of who we are. But I argue in the piece for uh, being self-conscious about what your identity is and, and being careful about how that's used politically. Right. And when I read the piece as well, what I thought um, when I saw that, you know, when I you had been talking to me actually about what you had been reading and that schools were teaching these things to um, Italian children, I thought to myself, well, these, you know, public schools quite often, they got a lot of practice and not just practice, but tips from all of the residential and boarding schools that um were held for Native Americans between the 17th and 20th centuries that used the literal same exact right. tactics. No, this is the story. Yeah, and then it it was just used. It was used every single decade for every single um, group that was deemed outside of um, the norm. So, uh, what was one of the most surprising things that you found in your research? Oh, the, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff about uh, where particular f- uh, ingredients and food items are from and the ways that uh, what you might consider to be sort of classic Italian dishes are the result of uh, a, a whole sort of sweep of influences and cultures actually just having the meeting point of uh, Italy and Italian Mm -hmm. sort of geography. So I really enjoyed, you know, reading through, reading through some of that, uh, through, through, through some of that. Uh, There's a, uh, there's an academic. uh, So, so this is interesting. So one of my main sources is academic who teaches at the University for Gastronomic Sciences <laughs> in uh, in Bra, Piedmont. In Palenzo. Uh, in Palenzo, yeah, in Palenzo, uh, 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 Piedmont, which we love. We, we've actually been there. Um, and so it was so fun doing research for this book and, and finding out one of the primary sources was was at this this university that's in a, in a very dear place of Italy for us. And so that was another kind of interesting connection. Uh, uh, but probably the most important piece of research I, I, I found was in talking to my mother. I talk about this in right. the piece. Um, I uh, was sort of asking my mother a few questions just to make sure I had sort of my sense of things correctly. And I learned something I never knew before, which is, that when my great grandfather arrived in America, he came through the port of Baltimore, which is where we live now, uh, which is just sort of took my breath away. And so, you know, I learned a lot of like cool academic uh, sort of historical information, but that that personal history is like a cool, cool fact that we're out, we're down by the port of Baltimore all the time. And it's, um, uh, and uh, so it, it was. It was pretty touching to, to 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 learn that and think about the fact that our youngest daughter is born in Baltimore. Right. Yeah. I guess the final question that I want to ask is: I think we all need to remember, and we're going back to Italy proper here, so we're not talking about Italian Americans, but talking about the thrust of your piece around identity. But I want to talk about Italy. Yeah. Um, 
Italy has been a country as we know it since 1946. So there are loads and loads and loads of people alive right now who remember Italy not being found, like Italy not being the way that it is now. Um, if you remember anything from middle school or high school uh, world history, you'll remember that Italy was built um, on nation states. And so that's why the regions of Italy now um, are so distinctive in terms of not just geography, but also the whole of its of each region's culture. So that's food, dialect, traditions, um, even religious um, practices. Um, with you, you mentioned the five star movement earlier and the um, sort of the the rise of the far right, especially over the past twenty years. Since Italy is such a young state, when it, when when you think about it, um, where I guess my question would be thinking thinking about this all this and 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 the how food influences everything. Do you think that Italy is going to continue to look the way that it looks, despite the fact that it's still quite young and it still actually has a lot separating itself? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think Italy's always always changing, and you know, I think you you can you can see almost you know from the first time we went when we got married to uh, to our most recent trips, just sort of significant changes and. Italy took a lot of Libyan refugees, mm -hmm. significant numbers of Syrian refugees. Um, they'll be, I believe, Italy will be accepting Ukrainians and so uh, refugees. And of course, they're a part of the EU, so you have a churn of, of movement, like Italy as a as a geographic location has had its entire history. So right, like that. That's a you go to uh, Sicily uh, and. Or um, La Marque and the significant Arab influence. You go to Campania and it's significant Greek influence. So I think I think Italy's always going to be changing. I do think that um, uh, they have significant sort of state power around agriculture and sort of. Uh, the legitimacy of um, uh, and sort of verification of Italian sort of food products. I, I think I don't think that's going anywhere. I think that they will. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, some of the mainstays of Italy will 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 remain the mainstays of Italy. But yeah, the culture is 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 always always changing, and I think that could be a that's that's where the um, that that's where the creative engine for the future to sustain yourself comes from, which is from new inputs and uh, figuring out how to live together as 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 a people. And I think it could be a I, I think it could be a beautiful uh, beautiful uh, a beautiful thing. Yeah, I I think the thing about Italy is that it's. I don't like to name every Europe country as a special case, but I think Italy is a special case when it comes to this issue of national identity and belonging. Um, 
Because if you can think of another country in which they're very um, opinionated about their food and where their food comes from and what is deemed their food and what is not deemed their food. And that's France. And I know sure. we talk about France a lot here. Um, but, you know, uh, they have laws and rules around um, where produce can come from and things like that. And so when you pick up a strawberry or a raspberry in France, it's like 99% of the time it's going to be from France because they, they want to grow everything there. They want to keep everything sort of insular. Um, and you know that a lot of chefs around the world fight to, you know, create French cuisine well and to be rated well. Um, but in Italy, the, the difference between France and, uh, and Italy, and uh, honestly, Italy with a lot of other European countries, is that most of the European countries, their national identity has always been built on homogeneity. And that is why there's been so much strife. And um, the rise of these parties right after the um, the golden age uh, and during this sort of 70s economic downturn when um, economic immigration became huge in, in most European countries. Um, because there was always this idea that we're all the same and what makes uh, French, what makes uh, a French person French and what makes a, a Swedish person Swedish and what makes a German person German there was this, there are just these very strong ideas around it, whereas Italy, because it was, it's been built off of nation states that have actually always said, we are complete, you know, Emilia, Emilia, and a million Romanian, and honestly, even a millions and Romanians yeah, that's themselves right. that's to be very different. different yeah. um, hence, a million Romanian, it's actually a hyphenated thing because it's actually bringing two peoples together. But an Emilian Romanian and, and someone from La Marche and a Sicilian and a Sardinian do have very different ideas about who they are. Now, when you if you find an Italian that has traveled to like the United States or elsewhere in Europe, they're going to say they're Italian. Um, but you know, when they're in Italy, usually they'll say what region they're from, and that's because Italy is built on a lot less of this idea of homogeneity equaling belonging. This sort of through line that's there. That's not to say that Italy does not have racism problems. That is not it, to say has, yeah. that they don't yeah. accept. Lib, uh, Libyan re uh, refugees, um, you know, with open arms. I mean, if you look into um, the Roma peoples um, in yes. Italy, um, the racism towards the Roma peoples is is breathtakingly horrific. Um, that's not to say that those things don't exist and they they aren't perpetuated. But at the sort of political level and the re and the rhetorical level, the five star movement just doesn't have a hold on politics like far-right parties do in a place like France, where the far-right party pretty much permeates the entire rhetorical um, sort of uh, handbook of all parties across France, even into the farthest of the left or the most liberal or most um, sort of enlightened of the left. The, you listen to any given speech or look at a lot of the policies and it's just a parroting of whatever is on the far right um, in, in most of the time. But in Italy, the five-star movement absolutely has supporters um, it, you know, has had leaders who have risen, who have done well, but in terms of these parties sort of having a hold on the political spectrum of Italy, that's just not true. It's not as true as it is in other European countries. And so, um, I, I think that's, I think that's a sort of unique, um, uh, aspect of Italy and Italian and how Italian culture sort of intersects with that and how it makes that dynamism possible, I would say. I, I think that's so interesting. Um, we're certainly like getting beyond sort of my expertise, but but I am like interested. You know, I, I think the assumption would be uh, to create the strongest national identity and sort of 
buy-in amongst citizens into the, the nation that you, you must squelch regional difference. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to think about uh, sort of in, in, in the American context uh, what kind of strength we get from state differences, regional differences that give people a more localized place of belonging uh, uh, from from which then they're uh, because of their local sort of belonging or more particularized belonging, sort of their their national allegiance is secondary, but but built into that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm Italian because I'm uh, Sicilian or Roman or uh, uh, or uh, Emilian. I'm American because I'm Texan or a New Yorker or a Californian. Um, I think that I think that's a really, really interesting, uh, interesting model to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And Italy's membership in the EU, um, looking at Italians' opinions towards the EU. Um, Italians have notoriously, at least for the past few years in opinion polls, they have the smallest share of people in in the EU, the 20, uh, well, sorry, 27 states. Um, they have the small share of people saying that being a member of the EU is a good thing. Most people in Italy are like, eh, it's neither a good thing or a bad thing. And uh, quite a few people have, I actually think it's a bad thing. And there was some polling on, you know, if the UK leaves via Brexit and if it does okay with its economy and it doesn't implode, you know, would you be in favor? And a lot of Italians said yes. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, um, I, I think it's because this, I, I, I actually think Italian national identity, because it came from, it, it's had to work so hard to uh, bring all those nation states together, I would say, that the conception of Italian identity is quite strong. Um, so as to think that the EU is just, you know, a, like 42% would say, and eh, either a good thing or a bad thing. And, you know, if the UK does okay after Brexit, which, uh, I mean, in most technical terms it has, you know, we should leave. Because no. we're Italian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's... Super interesting. Well, Melissa, I think I think we've uh, covered enough. We've provided a lot of uh, content. This podcast, the articles, political brief, faith in the news. Now, listeners need to watch. Uh, although you know, be be warned, Spring Awakening has uh, has uh, is not a, like a family musical, but. You should see it if you're game. <laughs> you know, yeah, like look it up. For sure. If you feel if you feel good about like the reviews that you, you if see. If not, just download the soundtrack because the music is ingenious. Yeah, you may need you may need a a, a, a beeped out sound, <laughs> yeah, soundtrack. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two songs. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. There's two songs, and I think you might see in the song titles which ones we are talking about <laughs> yeah they don't it's not hidden yeah you'll be able to <laughs> yeah you'll be able to maybe there, i think there probably is a non-explicit version that you could probably download yeah probably yeah. uh uh so the it, it is a great it is a great documentary um you know, take that with a grain of salt, given all of the very personal stuff that we <laughs> shared about how much it means to us. We know people in the dock, etc. Um, and then, uh, and then watch Stanley Tucci on CNN. If, if, if anything, 
this episode has to have encouraged you to read the article I wrote and then spend a little time with with the tooch. With the tooch. With the tooch. We're, we're talking about Haley. <laughs> <laughs> I've been calling him the tooch. Thank you. That's mine, by the way. That's not Michael's. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> what he's talking about is Stanley Tucci's show on CNN. It airs on Sunday nights at they 9 know. p.m. They know. The people know. Well, maybe they don't. I okay, don't know. okay. Um, searching for Italy, where Stanley Tucci is visiting every single region of Italy and talking about its food and what makes that region's food so special. And the food as a pathway into exploring some... Yes. Uh, a range of dynamics, much like my article. Let's wrap this thing up. <laughs> It was so wow with a bow. Yeah, yeah. It it was good to uh, uh, to to be with you for another week, another episode of Where Is the Love. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. You told me that you didn't love him.